You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, and today we're joined by Dr. Andre Jones. She's a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of North Carolina, as well as the director of the UNC Horizons program. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jones. I want to thank you, first of all, for being, being a guest on the show, and I want to get started with an overview of your background, uh, particularly in the field of addiction research and treatment. Yeah, so um, I have always been um, very fascinated by addiction, and particularly addiction that continues during pregnancy and into the postpartum period. My mother was a teacher of uh, children who had severe learning disabilities, and I would go into her classroom often, and there was a girl who had my exact same birthday, and she had full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome, and I remember when I was nine looking at her and thinking, wow, if my mom drank during pregnancy, perhaps I would have been like that, and wanting to understand why would moms drink, um, and what could we do to help them, and then also what we could do to help the children. I knew from the very early age I wanted to be a psychologist because blood uh, and injections and uh, needles don't make me feel very good. So I uh, really focused um, all of my attention on understanding brain and behavior. And when I was getting my PhD at Virginia Commonwealth University in psychology, I had the opportunity to do an internship in what they called at the time a perinatal 20 program. It was the height of the cocaine epidemic, and they had a residential treatment program for women and their children. And most of the women had cocaine use disorders at that time. And I got to, first clinical thing I ever did was co-facilitate a drug education group. And it was in that group that women, that um, I got to hear their stories of survival and resilience. And I just completely fell in love with the clinical population and knew it was the way I wanted to spend my career is to help. That's great. And that, that leads us into the work that you do and the study. So you took a look at opioid treatment programs around the state of North Carolina, and you analyzed the reproductive and sexual health of women in these programs. And my first question is, why do, women, uh, why do these women in the, in the study, as you mentioned, seem more vulnerable to having poor reproductive health? Right. I think that's a great question. Um, one of the one of the first times that I was really interested in looking at this was when I was at Johns Hopkins University at the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy. And we would see many women that would come into the treatment, do well, and then come back with a new pregnancy and you know, trying to understand um, relapse and recovery. And we published a paper not that long ago, which showed that for women that were entering treatment for opioid use disorder, 86% of them came in with an unplanned pregnancy, and they had been in treatment at least on average two times prior. And so what I realized was that drug treatment was a perfect opportunity to start to have reproductive 
life planning conversations because talking to many of the women, they really are disenfranchised. They live in the shadows. Um, they don't have access to adequate med- medical care of any type. And they also very rarely get accurate sexual health information. So in, in groups that we did, both at the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy early on and then continue to Horizons, where I am now, we've been regularly having conversations to help women understand how to get rid of the myths and get accurate information. And those myths are still alive and well, you know, from 25 years ago, those myths are still there that if you, and some women will tell us, even their providers have said, oh, if you have an opioid use disorder, you can't get pregnant. Or if you're taking methadone, you won't get pregnant. Or if you're taking buprenorphine, you won't get pregnant. So we work very hard to dispel those myths. Okay. And, and speaking of pregnancy, these women are more likely to get pregnant and have children than the, the general population. However, as, as you also mentioned, having poor or inadequate child care can be a big barrier to getting this type of uh, opioid treatment. So... I'm wondering if you came across any programs with good solutions to address this this challenge. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the ways that both Horizons solved that problem as well as the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy solved that problem is we created our own childcare. Um, now, that's not feasible for all programs. So one thing that can be done in, you know, um, in programs that provide methadone and or buprenorphine you can create a child-friendly setting in the waiting room or in a small part of the of the treatment facility so that children have a built-in sort of things to do um, and that it creates a much more child-friendly environment. So moms and or dads feel much more comfortable bringing their children so that that becomes less of a barrier. Good. Now, the paper also mentioned that women were more likely to utilize reproductive and sexual health services if they were in a safe environment or if they felt safe or if they felt like they could trust um, the staff in the program. So do you happen to have any specific recommendations of anything that was successful in fostering this type of environment? Yeah, I mean, I think it really starts from um, education for the treatment provider staff. You would be surprised about how many staff people feel incredibly uncomfortable talking about sex or reproduction. Um, and if they don't feel comfortable talking about it, they're not going to feel comfortable talking about it with their patients. So I think point number one is doing some staff education and helping get them comfortable and having accurate information. In fact, the state of North Carolina just took um, an intervention that we did and adapted it for the state of North Carolina. And so now all of our women's treatment programs have partnered with health departments and um, getting our, all of our staff really comfortable with how to have these conversations and give accurate information. So I think that's the first thing. Then the second thing is making sure that there's written materials that are around, making sure that there are other, um, you know, sort of low cost like condoms and other types of um, sexual health contraceptive practices that are easily available. And then making sure that once, um, once that conversation has been held and women want to make a contraceptive practice choice, that that is easily accessible and available, if not the same day, really close with a, a warm handoff. Okay. And another point that I wanted to touch on that stood out to me as a psychiatrist is the issue of postpartum depression. So you mentioned that uh, under 30% of the programs 
screened for postpartum depression, and then less than half of the programs routinely screened for HIV. So do you think that there should be uh, more of a standard in place for screening for, the, for medical and psychiatric conditions? I absolutely agree that they we do need to do a better job because a lot of times um, women that are seeking care in a treatment program, that might be the only contact that they have with any type of medical provider. So if we can't, if we don't have the resources to do it on site, we need to make sure that we're not only giving referrals, but making sure that we're following up, that they've actually followed through on the referral that's been given to them. And then if they can't, if there's something happened and fell through, to really understand what was driving that lack of follow-up. It could be that they don't feel comfortable with the provider or they didn't have transportation or maybe that provider is costly or there's some other types of barriers, but really understanding that. But I think absolutely, I think we need to be looking at more head-to-toe holistic care with addiction treatment being a bit an important part, but not the only part of their care. Okay. And for... For the listeners out there, of course, our listeners come from a variety of disciplines, but is there any general advice that you might have for a clinician interfacing with a woman with an opiate use disorder, and what recommendations might you have for becoming more effective at promoting treatment for the condition? Yeah, um, I, I think the first first and foremost is empathy. Um, our, women are very unfortunately used to confronting stigma, discrimination, and prejudice when they walk anywhere, sometimes including into a treatment program to interface with a provider. So really thinking about body language, thinking about language that is used, um, nonverbals, and then being open to the conversation and normalizing the conversation about sexual um, reproductive life planning. You know, I ask all of my patients this. I want to ask you about this. May I, do I have my, your permission to let's have a conversation about what's happening in, in your sex life? So I think just opening up the questions, opening up um, to the opportunity for a discussion will, and normalizing it will be very helpful to our women. And if they don't feel judged, then they were much more likely to share accurate information and ask good questions um, and making sure too that you have the answers and that you're able to provide um, those resources when they do ask and say that they want them. All right. Fantastic. Well, um, this was all really great advice. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing with us what you found in the study. I appreciate your insights and I thank you for bringing all this knowledge to the table and helping us to understand this issue just a bit better. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.